civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people. We urgently need financial, political and social innovations that enable us to overcome this structural dependency on growth. We need to change the system. This isn't cleaning up the beaches in the case of plastic a little bit faster. That's vital, that has to be done. But you need to stem the flow. Gosimon explores sustainable change and the women inspiring it. Who are they? What made them who they are? How do they read the world they live in? Our guests share their story, roots, passions and hopes for the future. They tell us more about the alternatives and strategies they developed to tackle climate change. What if we wasted a lot less energy and generated most of what we do use from renewable sources? What if we made refugees feel welcome and supported in their newly adopted homelands? What if we measured the economy with metrics other than how much bigger it is from one year to the next? What if we could think about car-free cities, no prisons, and more equal distribution of wealth without our brains getting completely discombobulated? What if we lived in a world in which the police did not shoot an armed young man of color and our education system did not generate a mental health crisis in young people? What if we phased out the aviation industry and embraced a life of slow travel instead? The Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari argues that humans became the most powerful creatures on the planet because of our imagination, our ability to tell stories and to ask What if? What if we revive our capability in great abundance? Starting now. This is an excerpt of Rob Hopkins' book, From What Is to What If, unleashing the power of imagination to create the future we want. In order to fix the climate, do we need to tell better stories? That's one of the many topics we will explore in this new episode. Our Simone today is Anna Greta Hunter. She's a cardiologist based in Canberra and clinical senior lecturer at the Australian National University Medical School. She is also Human Futures Fellow by the ANU College of Health and Medicine. She's working with the Commission for the Human Future, an initiative which brings together researchers and thinkers to promote ways we can prevent human extinction. With Arna Greta, we talked about growing up on a farm, the impact of the climate crisis on human health, utopia and dystopia, science denial in politics, and imagination for change. Hi, Hannah Greta. Hi, how are you? Lovely to speak with you. I would like to start this conversation with you going back to your roots and your childhood. Oh, well, they're really interesting places to start, aren't they, on the journey? And one of my interests as an adult is in narrative. And so a lot of how we interact with the world comes from the narrative that we've constructed retrospectively or otherwise. I grew up in Melbourne and I grew up on a farm on the outskirts of Melbourne. My family had had the property for a while. My grandfather and grandmother lived next door and my parents built a house on top of a hill. So I had a lovely childhood in that sort of rural setting, growing up with animals around and, and working on the farm as well as spending time in Melbourne, which is a lovely town to grow up in. Is there foundational moments in your childhood that you could describe or was it a fairly just peaceful, uneventful type of childhood? 
I think it was a relatively uneventful childhood. I often commented that I think growing up in open spaces can make a difference to your perspective on the world. I still think that that's the case. I think growing up with the freedom to be outside and to, to run around was really something that was very good for me and that has been useful to me as an adult. Learning how to do things practically is a, another useful skill. And I suspect that there are changes to your perspective on the world that you have either from growing up in a very urban environment or growing up in a rural environment. For me, I think I was lucky to have a little bit of both from the childhood that I had, having both the rural and the urban focus. It's given me the capacity to travel between the two. And so in my career, I've worked in the country and worked in the cities. I feel quite comfortable in both. And I think that's the resonance that remains from my childhood. And what kind of relationship did you have with your parents? You chose at some point to study medicine? My father's a paediatrician. In fact, the dynamic at home was always that I shouldn't study medicine and that my mother particularly was keen for me not to become a doctor. I think her concerns are that as doctors, you often spend a lot of time working and much less time with families and family dynamics. Career advice I had from my parents was, or from my mother was to not do medicine. Uh, she's come around to it many years later. At the end of school, I, I didn't do medicine. I actually did an arts degree at Melbourne University specialising in international relations. I'm so glad that I did that, getting that fairly general approach at the beginning has been very useful for me. And in fact, as I've been working with the Commission for the Human Future in the last couple of months, I've been reflecting a little bit on that early time, that first degree that I did at Melbourne University in the early 1990s. And the people that I met at that point and the diversity of views and opinions and discussions that took place at that point, I think have stayed with me as one of the most important. It was a time to really think about how we might sit in the world. So why did you then transition to medicine? I think the fact that I've done a degree in political science before I did medicine is just because I have difficulty focusing on one particular thing. At the end of my arts degree, I wanted to do some sort of specialist qualification. I considered doing law and I did some volunteer work at a local legal service and the lawyer there said, oh, look, in Nicaragua in 1988, it would have been more useful to be a doctor than a lawyer, practically useful in helping people's lives. And I'll blame him a little bit for the fact that I made that decision at that point to do medicine instead. I moved to Sydney and I went to Sydney University and did the graduate medical program there in the late 1990s. I would like to come back to how you personally became aware of climate change. Do you remember a time when you realized the urgency or is it something that came more progressively? What has been your journey? In terms of my working as an advocate in climate change, I've been a part of this scene, I guess, for the last couple of years now. So I definitely can't claim to having been involved with it for a long time. It's interesting when I reflect on my childhood, and, and so the beginning of the interview starting with childhood is an interesting one. When we were at school in the 1980s, we were all aware of global warming and talking about greenhouse gases was that time where the world banned CFCs and we were worrying about the hole in the ozone layer. I think in my childhood, we were raised with an idea that the relationship between humanity and the environment was a real one. My route into climate change activism, it's not, not the usual one. I'm a cardiologist, so I spend a lot of time talking to people about cardiovascular disease, problems with blood supply to their heart or arrhythmias or all sorts of uh, elements of their health. And one of the things, or there's two elements that, that often make a big difference to our health, One is the amount of activity that we do, walking or exercise, and the sort of food that we eat. And so I'm actually really interested in how we construct our cities and our living environments. I'm interested in that dynamic between the built environment and human health. 
And it was through that route that I connected with a group called Doctors for the Environment and particularly a professor from Adelaide, David Schumann, who's done an extraordinary amount of work on climate change through the prism of human health. It was really connecting with him a few years ago that had me, I guess, reflecting then on the arts degree that I had at the beginning of all of this. I think it's allowed me to use some of those political skills that I've had previously. The more you understand about the science of climate change, the more you recognise the pressing urgency. I'm fairly passionate about our health and wellbeing, and I think that climate change is the single greatest risk that we potentially face for the wellbeing of humanity. Part of my purpose in life at the moment is really to try and get some action on climate change. And I see that the benefits of action are very real. And I think when we're talking about climate activism and the things that we can do to mitigate, to reduce our carbon footprint, we're looking for arguments that help people to realise the benefits of change. Human health is one of the strongest arguments for, for action on climate change. And a new commission for the human future. Could you tell us more about uh, this initiative? The Commission for the Human Future arose a couple of years ago from a, it was a roundtable event at ANU hosted and coordinated by a group of emeritus professors. The primary concern was about the future of humanity, and it feels like a very big question, but it's a very important question. And so arising from that initial roundtable in 2017, the Commission for the Human Future was born, and it's a joint initiative between a group called Australia 21 and the ANU. It sits independently of ANU, but has a strong relationship with ANU, and particularly there's crossover relationships in terms of the academic staff. So the Commission for Human Future was launched last year. The idea behind the Commission is to communicate the risks that humanity faces. There's a list of 10 catastrophic and existential risks. And I think our job is not so much to solve these risks. There's a tremendous bank of knowledge out there in the world globally around these threats. But it's really about communicating the interrelationship between these threats and the benefits to solving them. The Commission for Human Future held its first round table at the end of March this year. We brought together around 35, 40 academics and thinkers from a range of different disciplines. And we had a diversity of views and perspectives at the table. The first round table we hosted was designed to look at the 10 existential and catastrophic risks to assess where the world is now and where the world might be going, and then to try and come up with some unifying themes about the sorts of solutions that will be useful for us. We had an extraordinary discussion, and I think the report that we released a few weeks ago now reflects that. Could you tell us a bit more about some findings in that report and some solutions? I remember thinking as we went into this roundtable environment that we're bringing together people from all over the place, and I wondered how that conversation would go. We hadn't predefined the outlook. What was quite extraordinary to me participating in that roundtable discussion was the, the unifying themes and how quickly they emerged. I think one of the first themes to emerge was the benefits of appreciating science and evidence. And I think we took a broadly collaborative view of that. Appreciating knowledge through history, through science, through evaluation, it should be at the core of how we evaluate the challenges that we face. In the politics that we see, both in Australia and globally, there's been an undermining that the use of evidence and science, and we've seen that particularly if you contrast coronavirus response compared to climate change response. So the use of science in a very broad definition of science would be one of the dominant themes that emerged from uh, the roundtable. And in terms of solutions, that's a really sensible place to be. It's, it is a solution for how we can contend with existential and catastrophic risk to better appreciate the science uh, that we already know uh, and uh, in appreciating the threats and looking for solutions moving forward. 
Second theme that emerged was the benefits of collaboration and open listening, understanding diversity of viewpoints and appreciating a cross-section of the community when we're making decisions and thinking through problems. And so making sure that there's representation from a diverse range of people, that we've got justice and equity built into the systems that we design and the solutions that we are encouraged to do. One of the final themes would be around thinking about our politics, the increasing concern in the group or the, the increasing concern globally that we're really focusing on a short-term election cycle. And it's not even an election cycle of a few years. Quite often you feel like policy decision-making can be made in the context of turnaround period weeks. We need to take a long-term view. We need to be able to see an horizon which is 5, 10, 50, 100 years down the track because issues particularly like climate change and environmental degradation, they're slowly simmering. The velocity of change is a slower one than things like the pandemic. In terms of appreciating the potential risks that we confront, understanding that that velocity is slower and that the response that we engender in the policy response and the way in which we behave needs to appreciate the longer term time frame. How has the report been received? I think we've had some favourable discussions around the report. We've been really very pleased with the way in which it's been taken up and discussed. The drivers that behind what I'm doing at the moment is to give people confidence that involving themselves in this conversation is important. And so giving people confidence that it is a really important thing that any individual can participate in, that, that's part of my messaging. I think we're beginning to see that shift. I think we can already see it in the conversations that we're having uh, day to day, that giving people confidence that thinking about the human future is important has already had some resonance. Do you find it's easy to talk about those catastrophes in the Australian society? In my personal experience, I find outside of those social media bubbles which talk about climate change with scientists and researchers in the field and political movement that take that on board, you can be looked at like prophet of doom or an extreme killjoy to mention those in conversation. What's your personal experience with this? Do you find it's difficult to be that type of person embracing those ideas that actually the human existence is threatened and say that out loud? It's a really complicated question. It's a great question. And I think it cuts to a lot of the conversations that we're having in activist circles or in circles where we're looking at policy change. One of the places to start would be to consider 2020 or particularly the last six months that we've experienced in Australia. And certainly where I am in Canberra and in eastern parts of New South Wales, it's been a really devastating year. We had an absolutely horrendous drought. It's difficult to describe the magnitude of the drought to people who haven't lived through that. Driving through regional New South Wales, so many places where there was no water uh, in the dams, the rivers had stopped running, the creeks had stopped running, and very large trees were dying. The devastation was visceral and I think really very much felt by the communities, whether or not they recognise that or identify that as climate change. And we had water shortages. We had towns running out of water. Just out of Canberra in Braidwood, the Shoalhaven River had stopped running, so to the point where we'd been tr started trucking water into that town. Bushfires that came on top of that were unprecedented. They were not unpredictable. We could have been more proactive, I think, in our response to the bushfires. But without dwelling on that too much, the magnitude of the bushfires, again, is extremely hard to explain to people who weren't living through it. 
we're used to having bushfires. Our Prime Minister was correct, but we're used to bushfires that last for a few days and perhaps at the most a week or so. We had across this part of Australia for many months very hazardous air pollution. We were unable to see across the street at various points here in Canberra. There's this concepts of dystopia or utopia, and, and we lived through a dystopian experience. We, we were living through times which, which feel, really did feel like uh, Armageddon, uh, and it felt, it felt like the world was ending at various points, and that, that sounds hysterical, but it was a really extraordinarily confronting period. And so we went from just recovering from the fires and the bush, the, the smoke and the heat. The drought began to break. We had a little bit of rain in Canberra. We, I remember thinking in January that I was just about ready to relax when temperatures were going down and the weather was just beginning to improve. And we had a, a pretty awful hailstorm, which took out quite a lot of uh, physical property in Canberra, cars and houses and such. I, I say to people, I think that was the last time I relaxed in 2020. We went from that emotional roller coaster over summer into the coronavirus lockdown period and the real concern that so many of people face with concern about contracting the virus or losing friends or loved ones from the virus and the really significant health challenges associated with that and the economic devastation associated with that lockdown period. I think that this is an unprecedented year, which has been uh, more stressful and more difficult than we really would ever have imagined. That's the context uh, into which we've released this report. And when I'm thinking about activism for climate change or getting people engaged in this conversation about the human future, I have to start from a position of recognising the potential emotional distress of those around me. The summer has been devastating, that the psychology of living through these highly traumatic periods can be really complex. And I'm not a psychologist, but I certainly am a doctor and I look after people from across this part of the world. I know in my life that I don't have room for much more negativity. And what I'm really needing right now is a way to frame the problem. I think being given the solutions of how to actually describe what we've been through, that's helpful. I think that's psychologically helpful. And we know there's quite a lot of research that says giving people options for change. So engaging them in that process of change is part of the psychological recovery after trauma like we've been through. When we, we read the commission report, we most definitely are describing catastrophic and existential risks. We're describing the sorts of things that can seriously change the structure of humanity, killing many people, changing the working and living experience for, for so many parts of the world. And yet we can frame this as an opportunity for transformative change. To me, this language of positive advantage is actually very, very important. As I said, I don't have a lot of personal space for, for negativity anymore. I need to be able to think about the future through a positive lens. I tell a little story around where we're at in terms of change in the world. I know that over the summer through Australia, that many of us working in climate change were increasingly anxious about the need for change. And I certainly join the call for rapid transition away from a carbon intensive environment and to be net zero as fast as possible would always have been my my personal choice and so I think we were sitting on the edge of the cliff and I had a game that I was starting to play with friends and family last year where I said well look this is a good test for what we have to do to act on climate change you wake up in the morning and they've in the world we have stopped burning fossil fuel uh, what happens next 
because I live in Canberra and we've got renewable energy. 100% of our electricity supply is uh, renewable. So at least in Canberra, you can still turn the lights on and water is relatively reliable. But as you go through the course of a normal day in your life and you think about what the carbon footprint is associated with the things that you do each day, you begin to realise the magnitude of the change that's required. To me, I got to the coffee machine and I thought, oh goodness, you know, there's quite a big carbon footprint. It's trade dependent. My coffee comes from overseas. Maybe just a little bit more climate change, a little bit more carbon pollution, and I can still have my coffee in the morning. But these are the sorts of decisions that we practically make each day about buying things or participating in activities which do still require the burning of fossil fuel. So we were sitting on the edge of the cliff, realising that we had to rapidly decarbonise our economy and looking at that process and genuinely knowing that that would be very, very hard. Economic transition particularly, tremendously challenging. And so the coronavirus experience that we're still going through now, I think, has taken us off the cliff. I think transformative change is quite clearly underway. We know there's a tremendous economic transition. And again, I'm personally very aware of the financial stress and for those who have lost jobs and who have lost economic potential and who are looking at, at significant financial strain. For me, as we emerge from this process where everything we do needs to be framed through the, the view of someone who has just lost their job, but we know that this transformative change is underway in an extraordinary position. Those things that when we were sitting on top of the cliff thinking this is going to be hard, those hard things are now in play. We can practically speak about how we want to work. Do we want to work a 38-hour week? Do we actually want to, to increase the value of spending time at home with family? Do we want to be more involved in our children's lives, in our families' lives, in our neighbourhood lives? You know, all of these things that were previously a no-go zone, universal basic income, which so many of us have been talking about for a long time, these things are now potentially in play. I don't know if the analogy works, but we're, we're definitely still falling off the cliff. We're looking for the landing point or for the rope or some sort of thing that will help us to land in the best possible way. This is where the, the Commission for the Human Future and the other advocacy work that many of us are doing comes in, that we can help to craft the landing position. We can shape the dynamic of the discussion to the point where we will land in a better place and we can really transform the lives that we lead and the way in which our future is crafted. In a recent article you wrote titled Doctors Need to Meet Challenge of Climate Change, you highlight the importance of speaking of climate change not only as an environmental issue, but also as a health issue. Why do you think this is still a fairly debated topic? Maybe if we contrast coronavirus against climate change, that gives us some interesting prisms on that particular challenge. The coronavirus, it's a binary thing. You either have it or you don't have it. And so we can count the number of infections from coronavirus. We can look at what happens to people who have coronavirus, whereas the health impacts from climate change are more complex to describe. I was working at the hospital over the summer period here in Canberra when we had hazardous air pollution and extraordinary levels of PM 2.5, as well as that devastating drought and the trauma of the fires. And I looked after people with things like infections, chest infections, skin infections, people who'd fallen over. And so all of those sorts of problems that would normally see you in hospital, people don't make the association with climate change. And yet I think each one of the people that I had in hospital over that period, their course, their, their need for admission to hospital, their course of time in hospital was influenced by the environmental factors outside. 
I think in the medical profession, we actually need to be much better at describing and recognising the relationship between the environment that we live in and our health. We sort of do that in things like cardiology and thinking about how I ended up working in climate change. We know that physical activity, for example, is really good for us. In fact, your cardiologist is much less likely to describe the influence that air pollution has on your risk of heart attack than they are to talk about smoking. And potentially the risk of heart attack from exposure to hazardous air pollution if you're living in a city like New Delhi or if you were living in Beijing when the air pollution was really bad, that an analogous risk to cigarette smoking. And yet in the health profession, we're not framing those risks in the same way that we do uh, frame personal choice activities. I think there's room for medicine to better appreciate the environmental context of the health of humankind, that temperature variability, the, the physical world around us, so taking care of our trees and our water, all potentially influences our human health and wellbeing. In Australia, I am struck at the moment, there's a large number of doctors who are calling for action around coronavirus. And as a profession, we've really stepped up to helping the community understand the need for action I would estimate the number of doctors who've potentially commented in that sphere are well over 10, 20,000. There's lots and lots and lots of people who've commented about coronavirus. I know with the refugee action, so there was a very effective campaign for doctors coming together to try and get refugees from Nauru, and I certainly joined in that. And there was about six or 7,000 doctors who joined actively in that call for better care for our, our refugee population. In the environment movement, we have many thousands of doctors, but it's actually a smaller proportion than people who are involved in the refugee action. And I think, again, it's because we, we really need to have quite active discussions around that interrelationship between the environment in which we live and our human health. We have done a convincing job of disconnecting ourselves that it maybe it doesn't matter what the world around us is like as long as we're protected inside the bubble of our living room. And unfortunately, I think that's not the case. I think we really do need to have an increased awareness of the fact that the air that we breathe is really important. Uh, the water that we drink is also really important. The food that we need to eat is also important. And that for those three things, air, food and water, the environment around us is integral. I think there's a little bit of work to be done in my profession to better appreciate the risks that, that climate change really do pose to human health. According to a study published in The Lancet, the carbon footprint attributed to healthcare is 7% of Australia's total. Peoples tend to be highly energy intensive. They consume large amount of resources and produce a lot of waste. Studies show that we could reduce this by reducing our reliance on hospital-based healthcare and improving availability of public health, so prevention, etc. Is it something which is looked at from your personal experience? Most definitely a growing awareness of this, and I've probably had more conversations around this in the last six to 12 months than I have done in the years beforehand. In the ACT, there's a global greening hospital network. Part of our climate change strategy for the ACT that was released last year included developing established relationships between the health services here, that understanding of greening hospitals. When we think about the carbon footprint of the health industry, there's a few points to make. It is estimated to be 7% of the Australian carbon footprint, and so it is a significant part of our carbon footprint. Healthcare in Australia employs a little bit more than 7% of the population. That's somewhere around about 10% of people who are working in health or, or aged care. And so in terms of economic activity, there's an interrelationship, of course, between the economic activity generated by the sector and the carbon footprint. 
as we think about changing the carbon footprint of the healthcare sector, we need to think about the impact that that has on economic activity and the way in which people are employed. The two elements of the carbon footprint for healthcare come dominantly from people going to hospital and from the pharmaceutical industry. Again, it comes back to how I personally ended up working in climate change, these issues around lifestyle and how we can facilitate increased physical activity and how we can think about nutrition and we can think about the social dynamics, so the relationships that we have also influence our health. I often say this, if we really wanted to cure heart disease, we would be thinking about how we design our cities, but whether or not curing heart disease is at the core of what we want to do becomes much more complex. We train doctors these days to work in hospitals. We train our nurses to work in hospitals. We train our health system around a hospital-based model. If we take the broad view, if we begin to get a better appreciation that health is integrated into other systems, we could probably change the way in which we practice medicine, change the way in which we deliver healthcare in a way that significantly decreases the carbon footprint. It's me calling for imagination again. A big fan of beginning to imagine new ways of doing things because uh, that's how we'll potentially solve that. And do I think that there are solutions that are practical that will maintain people's life expectancy and quality of life? Yes, I do. But I really think that it's an opportunity for quite an extraordinary conversation within the practice of medicine and within medicine as a discipline or healthcare as an industry. You said it, we seem to need science and evidence more than ever. It's written in the report recently published by the Commission. And expert decisions rather than political ones uh, during this time of climate and health crisis. How do you explain the defiance lots of governments have against science? Well, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I don't know the answer to that question. It strikes me, again, it's an extraordinary time to be able to offer the contrast between climate change response and coronavirus response. And one of the things that struck me recently was the difference in narrative around this. The coronavirus and the pandemic experience is, is a new experience for so many countries of the world. And, and you certainly see that it, the coronavirus response has been better in places where they understand the narrative around uh, pandemics in places like Hong Kong and Taiwan. The pandemic response is a, is a space where the narrative was not already developed. As a government trying to work out how to respond, they've absolutely had to take on board the health advice. Pandemic comes back to trying to save lives and they've quite comfortably landed in the let's save as many lives as possible camp. If we contrast that with the bushfire response here in Australia over summer, it's quite a different narrative. We knew last year the science in 2019 told us that it was a devastating year. We knew at the end of the year that we'd had less rain in that year than we'd had for an extraordinarily long time. It's a record-breaking year without rain. We knew that we had a very high-risk summer. So all the science was telling us that we had a potentially significant problem and a significant threat ahead. The political narrative was we always have bushfires, we always have droughts, business as usual, it'll get better. I think we've become accustomed to this narrative that there's some debate about the science of climate change. And we all know that that's not true. The science here is relatively unequivocal. The politics behind this is complex. And I think one of the ways to describe it is thinking about that narrative form, calling that out as a narrative in untruth, probably the best way forward. The learning from the benefits of embracing science in coronavirus response and thinking about how we can apply that to climate change. 
And if we look at the practicalities in terms of mortality in Australia, we've obviously had deaths from coronavirus, which are very distressing. But the numbers of people who have died from coronavirus is a much smaller number than those who were thought to have died as a result of the hazardous air pollution from bushfire smoke. If we'd taken a similar approach to the potential risk of bushfires or the potential risk of climate change, we would have acted significantly much earlier. We would certainly have been better prepared for the fire season in 2019-20. So what can we do about that? Well, for each of us who are reflecting on these issues, we can all shift the narrative. We can bring the narrative back to the benefits of the recognition of science. We can bring the narrative back to imagining the future, not just imagining the next electoral cycle, but imagining what life might be like for generations to come, imagining what our physical spaces will look like with temperature changes and the way in which we might work around that. I think we have to disrupt this political narrative around failing to act on climate change. I think that would be something that would make a big difference for all of us. You've used a lot of uh, the words, narratives, imagination, etc. I also follow a movement on the internet, which is called Climaginary. So the act of imagining a future post-climate change when we'll turn to a net zero carbon emission. In a recent interview you gave, you said the pandemic gives us the impetus to step up and take some responsibility. In it, we can see clues about how the future can be. How do you imagine the future? you personally. One of my favourite quotes from David Wallace Wells' book, Uninhabitable Earth, just to highlight the craziness of the world that we're in, that somehow it's easier to imagine changing the colour of the sky to block the rays of the sun than it is to act on carbon pollution. And so I'm probably at the act on carbon pollution end of that particular spectrum. Yes. I like the, the natural world that we have around us. I'd very much like to see us looking after that more convincingly. If we take a really broad view of human society, perhaps what we're doing is going through a developmental phase. Maybe we're at the end of our adolescence and we're actually beginning as a species to better appreciate where we're at, where our role is in the world. And so taking better responsibility for our actions. And you can think about that through the developmental phases of the human. Maybe we're at the end of adolescence and we're beginning to be adult-like. And so I'd like us to, to step up and to recognise the symbiotic relationship with the physical world around us, with the environment around us. I probably have a utopian vision and I know that it sounds utopian, but it would be wonderful if we were paying as much attention to managing the environment around us as we do to managing the economy. And I think one of the things that the coronavirus is showing us is that we can take a different view of our economics. You know, economics is defined. There are a set of rules that we all use to define our economic relationships and we can redefine that to allow for things like human experiences and human relationships that the social dynamics that we construct in, the, in our societies make a big difference to our health and well-being and to the environment in which we live. That's my utopia. My utopia involves caring for the world around us, caring for plants and animals, having a better understanding of the symbiotic relationship between human health and existence and the physical world around us, but also to encouraging that social dynamic, understanding families and societies and how to care for each other. I know it does sound utopian, but I think you have to dream. Absolutely. Research shows that women bear disproportionate burden of climate change. They are more sensitive to heat stress. They are more exposed to vector-borne disease, indoor air pollution. They often have a limited access to resources and a lack of decision-making power. Do you feel we need a gender-sensitive approach, especially in climate and health policy? Are you favorable to that? 
Absolutely. And I think that part of that is the conversation, recognising diversity of perspectives. Part of responding to any of these grand challenges or these catastrophic or existential risks, really recognising the different strengths and weaknesses of the people around us. And so understanding the politics of gender is very, very important and recognising that women are much more vulnerable to this and much more likely to suffer either quality or quantity of life effects from climate change should be built into some of our solutions. Climate change, environmental pollution, water scarcity, food scarcity, all of these things are related. And so acting on one or the other of these elements will influence the other elements. And you can see gender running through all of that. If your primary focus is to try and improve gender equity across the world, you'll find that there are significant advantages for climate change action, that you'll see that there are environmental benefits to gender equity that there are social benefits to gender equity, potentially that reduces conflict and the risk of war. And so it should be part of our solution. Politically, we've seen that women leaders tend to consider climate change as a priority more than actually men leaders. Do you believe having more women in position of leadership would progress climate mitigation agenda? I think it does. And I think you can see it. And I think you probably see it partly in the coronavirus response that a lot of people have commented on Jacinda Ardern and Angela Merkel's responses to the coronavirus Partly it's because they can communicate and it comes back to their capacity to really explain the narrative to their societies. Women make very good storytellers. We're good at, at actually constructing and, and recognising the narrative themes. And so I think it made it into the final report that recognising the benefits of having more women in leadership roles will be helpful. Have you faced sexism in your life, in your experience as a doctor, as a professor? Is it something you've, you've been confronted to? I feel like I've been fairly lucky and so I, I don't spend a lot of time reflecting on that. It's not been a major barrier and yet it is there all the time. And I think for everybody working in professional roles, particularly that most women will have had experiences, it's the small things like at a meeting being asked who has to go and pick up the children. You very rarely would ask a man and you would always not infrequently ask a woman about whether they have to make the childcare pick up. I have children but my husband does the looking after and does most of the childcare and the, the children management side of things. And that's been a really interesting experience because he also gets a degree of discrimination and lack of recognition for the work that he does as a father. And so I'm a fan of the Annabelle Crabb thesis. I think we need to take gender out of the equation of parenting. I think if we can move the conversation to all parents being required to be involved in raising children, that that would be very helpful. It's partly family dynamics that are part of the barrier to women in the sorts of sexism and uh, gender issues that arise professionally. If when we're employing people and when we're working with people, we know that the family dynamic is just as likely to affect our male colleagues as it is our female colleagues, that I think that takes us quite a long way to solving the gender disparity that we see. In cardiology, where, where I work, where it's a, it's a male-dominated profession. The vast majority of cardiologists in Australia are male, and the vast majority of cardiology departments are run by men quite a number of cardiology departments around the country have no women. And so that's a problem. Probably needs to be actively addressed, I suspect. I've shared with you just before this interview some articles and I would like to hear your comments on them. So the first article was called We Can Waste Another Crisis or We Can Transform the Economy in Jacobin Mag. It is very briefly a call for a Green New Deal. What are your views on taking this trajectory? 
As I mentioned, I think we're in a process of transformative change. So the world around us is most definitely changing. Our economic relationships are changing. Our social relationships are changing. I like some of the models of a Green New Deal. I think that that's a very sensible way. And I think I've probably touched on a number of the reasons why I think that's advantageous from a health perspective. I don't know whether those words or that particular policy works in Australia, but I would very much encourage people to spend time uh, imagining what they would like in terms of their economic relationships relationships, the social dynamics, how we work and the way in which we invest in our economy. Uh, This is one of those unique moments in time where we can potentially change. And I agree with the author's idea that you never waste a good crisis, that Churchillian comment that too many of us are using, but it's absolutely true. I mean, this this sort of transformative change that we're in at the moment really is unlikely to happen again in our lifetime. And so it's an extraordinary opportunity for us to engage. That's where my optimism has come from. I am more optimistic now than I was a few months ago, and I'm optimistic because I think we have extraordinary opportunities for changes that will resonate for generations to come. And the second article is on Australian politics. It was called Cash Top Activists Should Not Be Able to Hold Up Developments, Australia's Resources Minister Says. It was published in The Guardian. It is describing, unfortunately, some moves from the Australian government to add a flexibility to environmental laws and weaken them. This is something we've seen happen in the United States as well. The word post-COVID be worse than the word pre-COVID. This is the more pessimistic view compared to what you've just said. Uh, what are your thoughts? There's a few things that come from this discussion, and that's a chilling uh, statement that we're going to cut green tape. I've heard the government make those statements now on a few occasions in the last couple of years, and it's absolutely devastating to see that that is still the narrative. There's a few points in that article that we can perhaps all agree in, and it'd be great to have certainty around the environmental laws and the EPBC Act, uh, into which a tremendous amount of effort has been put, particularly in environmental circles. I know so many people who have spent a tremendous amount of time looking at that uh, legal framework around environmental protection. And there's a compelling argument to say that the way in which our legislation and our legal framework looks after our environment is not good enough and really does need to be updated. And so in terms of the EPBC Act, it's part of, part of the narrative that many of us can engage in at the moment. It's the legislative review that will involve many who might be listening to this podcast. The spine-chilling bit of this, the very distressing part of cutting green tape, reminds me that the window of opportunity for transformative change is a small one. The tendency for our government to try and return to the old narrative will be a great one. And so we have a window that is, I think, open at the moment of trying to really nudge change around environmental protection. And I would encourage as many people as possible to participate actively in that discussion. To conclude this conversation, Anna Greta, I'd like to ask you if you had a book to recommend a film, something that you watched so lately that inspired you. I would recommend a book that was published a year or so ago by Sharon Friel, who's a colleague of mine at the ANU. She wrote a book called Climate Change and the People's Health. It's a lovely book and it is a fantastic thesis where she describes the relationship between increasing commoditization of food and into a model that she describes as consumptogenesis and this consumptogenic model that then contributes to both poor health outcomes from a human health perspective, but also to a high greenhouse gas footprint and contributes to pollution and to climate change. So it's a beautiful thesis. It's a little book. It's highly, highly, highly recommended. 
The other things on my desk include a book called uh, How Democracy Ends by David Munsonman from Cambridge. In terms of fiction, I just finished reading William Gibson's Agency and I really enjoyed that as well. And so if, again, as we're practising ideas around imagining the future, the William Gibson book helps you to think about what things might be like in the future. Excellent. Thank you very much for those uh, recommendations and for your words, Anna Greta. This was great. It was lovely to speak with you, Roxanne. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you very much for listening to our conversation with Anna Greta Hunter. This episode was edited by Karen Crossen and transcripted by Alicia Van Ziel. As always, all the show notes are available on the website gosimon.org. See you in two weeks.